Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Mr. Matt Alexander grew up and was educated in Melbourne, receiving his medical degree from the University of Melbourne in 2005. He then completed his orthopaedic training in Victoria and Tasmania and commenced practice as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon in 2016. He has completed fellowships across the world and has a special interest in robotic-assisted arthroplasty, including hip replacement via the anterior approach, knee ligament reconstruction, and management of patellofemoral joint instability. Matt practices at the Austin Hospital and Melbourne Hip and Knee. Welcome to the Orthopod, Matt. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for having me. Fantastic initiative you've got. Thank you. So in 2000, you started a medical degree at the University of Melbourne. What made you choose to study medicine and what were some of your best memories at Parkville? Uh, So what made me choose medicine? So I guess growing up through high school, I was always interested in science and, and medicine side of things. Uh, and as you get to the pointy end, realise that my marks will probably be good enough to consider medicine as a, a choice, either physiotherapy or medicine. That's where I was heading towards the end of school. And, you know, certainly my parents were a massive influence for me in terms of guiding me um, into, into that sort of line. I was originally keen on sort of sports medicine. That's really, you know, I love sports, I love medicine, it makes sense to kind of put the two together. And that's really where it all started for me. Um, and while I liked those two things, what I really loved was basketball, and I still do. And uh, it's a dream I've only just recently given up on, which was to play in the NBA um, one day. And I saw medicine as a pathway to that, whereby I'd be the sports doctor for the Chicago Bulls. During training one day, the ball would roll over to me. I'd pick it up, hit a three without looking. They'd obviously sign me on the spot there, and that would be my entrance into basketball in the NBA through medicine. Um, as I said, now just turned 39. I've just recently given up on that as a possibility. But, uh, yeah, that's probably where it all, all began for me. And I'm only half joking about that. I really thought that might be a good idea. Uh, in terms of the second part of your question, you know, what are some of the memories of Parkville? Uh, you know, I so 2000, 2005, I'm there. We're now 20 years post that. And even in a, as a junior doctor, um, there were things that we did during student life that they weren't doing anymore. Some of your listeners probably won't understand what this is, but it's a thing called a pleasant Friday afternoon. So PFA, these are things that every clinical school and during O-Week, the Royal Melbourne Hospital one would be on. Friday afternoon, the clinical school would host it. You'd go there, it'd be a party, it'd be thoroughly enjoyable. You'd also get experience chatting to people in the older years. Um, and these are some of the things that, you know, don't happen anymore. They used to happen at the actual clinical school in, in hospitals. So they're some of my greatest memories back then in terms of things that, you know, you don't necessarily get exposed to anymore. But certainly for me, and what I, I probably get coming back to it, is is it's about, for me, mates and the connection you make. So I had friends from school that went to Parkville and University of Melbourne and they were in other courses, so engineering and law and other things, so hanging out with them, meeting friends of theirs that you wouldn't otherwise. But the collection of mates I've got from med school that we still hang out every year, even though we've gone different directions, interstate, international, um, obviously COVID's having an impact on that, but... Just that connection you make and hanging out with mates is probably the main thing I take away from it. 
you did mention um, the Bulls, and I think it's worth I point out that Michael Jordan did return and play for the Wizards um, <laughs> at your age, so that dream's not necessarily over just yet. Um, but what clinical school were you assigned to, and when did you realise you wanted to become an orthopaedic surgeon? Um, clinical school was the Austin Hospital, so for us it was two and a half years at university-based one year of advanced medical science and then two and a half years at a clinical school based. So it was around sort of mid, you get assigned to a clinical school. And funnily enough, a lot of my mates that were actually assigned to St. V's and I was assigned to Austin. I remember at the time being pretty unhappy about that, not because anything to do with the Austin, but just because all my mates are going to St. V's. And like anything in life, as it turns out, I wouldn't change anything because if I hadn't have gone to the Austin, I wouldn't have this other collection of mates that I've got. I wouldn't have been exposed to the orthopaedic department there at the Austin Hospital, which is where I work now and where my mentors are and where I've, you know, developed this passion and love for orthopaedics. You know, so I actually wouldn't change anything for the world, but it's funny how at the time you have this idea of, oh, no, I didn't get into this, so it's going to be massively different for me. And at the Austin, who are some of the people that helped you on the way to becoming an orthopaedic surgeon? Um, so at the Austin's where I met my uh, mentor, who's a senior orthopaedic surgeon at the Austin. His name's Roger West, who, yeah, he's just someone that sets an example. But also, as I have grown up and moved from you know, med student to registrar to now consultant, just having that person to be able to um, discuss different things, and not just orthopaedics, but life in general, has been fantastic. Was there a moment during your training as a medical student where you thought, this is what I want to do? And was that because of Dr. West? Yeah, so the main thing I got out of it, again, is like, you know, you do medicine, you find something you like, it might be the science aspect of it, and certainly for orthopaedics, the scientific, the medical, the techniques associated with it, all those things are important. You need to have that because, you know, orthopedic training is a hard slog. You need to love what you're doing. You need to enjoy turning up to work every day. And one of the big things about that is that the people you work with, so the people in that unit at the time and the people that are there now are people I enjoy going to work with. I enjoy discussing, you know, difficult cases with them. Uh, enjoy hanging out with them socially um, as you grow up and our families sort of hang out as well. And that is a big thing at the Austin that I didn't, you know, I'm sure exists at other places, but I didn't get as much of an exposure to it elsewhere as I have at the Austin. So it's more, it's it's actually not so much the the science and the medicine behind it. It was the the unit itself and the people that yeah um, that you really enjoyed, which directed you to that yeah. path. Yeah. Well, I know that um, you know I'm an Austin clinical student myself, and they always bang on about how it's a friendly place. And yeah. um, I've certainly mentioned PFAs before. I've certainly heard, heard about those, but with COVID, it's been a bit tricky. So yeah. hopefully, we can get stuck into those again. Yeah. So, and the other thing you were talking about in terms of when did I realise I wanted to be an orthopaedic surgeon, and for you know the students that are listening. It's funny, one of my, my, my best mate, who's um, someone that is also doing orthopaedics, his name's Aaron Buckland, um, and there are others that are like that. They knew what they wanted to do from like, even before med school, they're, I'm going to be a, a surgeon, I'm going to do this or that. And, you know, on one side, you're jealous of that because, you know, you see someone that knows what they want to do, that, you know, if there's a, a question there to select where they want to go, they know what they want to do, they're going to put that down. But you also see them... Uh, possibly you know closing their eyes to other opportunities because they already know what they want to do and they're not they've already said oh, i don't want to do whatever geriatric medicine or ong or whatever it is um, because they made this decision early without actually having experienced it all so there is that balance to, to be found i think in terms of you know deciding what you want to do when you want to do it were there any specialties that you'd thought about but ended up not choosing 
Um, I think there are, there, you know, there's a couple you're probably not going to do anyway. But again, if I hadn't have done the, had gone through the experience or, or gone to a classic example is I went to the Mercy Hospital for obstetrics and gynecology, which is something I never thought I'd be interested in. But I had a fantastic time there. The people there are great. The teaching's great. The structure of ONG medicine in terms of if this happens, do this, and then if that, and do ABC. Um, and it was this really nice sort of combination of both medicine and surgery. And at no point did I think I'd be an ONG um, obstetric gynecology doctor, but that's just an example of things you see that you might not have expected. So moving back to ortho, the guidelines that the Australian Orthopaedic Association have state that in order to get onto the program, you need to have 26 weeks of orthopaedic surgical experience at PGY3 level. But how do you get orthopaedic surgical experience if you're not actually on the training program? And what experience did you have before starting your training? Yeah, it's a really important question. And, and the reality is this is often changing in terms of what's required what the AOA requirements are to commence training. And so anyone that's interested in orthopaedics needs to be aware of these changing um, specifications because it might be something you have to decide now, even though it's only possible to execute next year, such as, you know, orthopaedic unaccredited registrar training, for instance. But experience can be varied, of course. It's not just in the hospital where you're, you know, intern, resident. The classic is you intern, then a resident, then an unaccredited position for a year or two and then onto the training program. But that's not the only way you can get experience in orthopaedics. There's, there's research as you're involved with, there's private assisting, um, there's writing book chapters and being involved in other ways. But in terms of what's recognised, currently, as you said, it's 26 weeks of actual working on the ward training. And the best way to do that so is, is to really get involved from the intern year, make yourself known to people in that unit and make those connections would be probably the best way forward because then when it comes time in after so intern year first year hmo1 or pgy2 first resident year and then you start applying for unaccredited jobs and it's that first unaccredited year which you would then get the 26 years 26 weeks of experience it is possible and people to do that without doing unaccredited years because of the way that the set program set up it's about competency now it's not about oh you know you've got to do your time and then we'll let you on um and so for me yeah, it was intern year uh 18 months of resident years which is two rotations of orthopedics and then i actually took six months off and that was at the time where the set program was inviting people that actually hadn't done any unaccredited years they were looking for junior people to train up it was just that flip between the old system and the new so i actually got it while i was away uh, in Africa at the time, I was applying for a, the program to get on the program, having not done an unaccredited year before. And they actually gave me the, an interview, as they did a lot of my colleagues. Um, and I was I remember prepping for it in, I think, Slovenia or somewhere it was, in Lake Bled, and writing down questions of, much like you're asking, why do you want to do orthopedics? I've still got this little A5 exercise book with the answers in there. And yeah, missed out that time, which is pretty a common thing in terms of interviews. And then you apply again. And now at the moment, there's, I think you get three interviews um, or three cracks at it. But it's all about preparation for that interview and then yeah, getting on after that. What were some of the questions that they ask on the interview? So the gone are the days of, you know, tell us a bit about yourself or... <laughs> Um, why do you want to do orthopedics? Uh, now it's a lot more structured. You know, for me, it's uh, compared to what I went through as to what is now, because I'm involved occasionally with the actual formal interview process, but certainly preparing our registrars for the interview process. 
it's now a lot more structured. Every person gets the same question asked by the same member of that panel. They can't ask other questions around um, the ones that are on the piece of paper so that everyone, you know, is getting a formalised, standardised question format. A lot of it's clinical-based, but equally they can still throw things out recently, like tell us about, um, you know, a hero of yours or a mentor of yours or someone you look up to. Uh, and interesting enough, a lot of people just, you know, fall back into giving that orthopaedic answer of, oh, my head of unit does this or whatever else. And it was the people that had, you know, a bit left field answers that actually stood out. And then when you got onto the training program, another yeah. thing that the Orthopaedic Australian or the AOA guidelines state is, quote, you will have very long days every now and then. What was your experience completing the training program when you were accepted onto it? And can you tell me about those very long days? Uh, yes, I'd agree that um, you will have very long days every now and then, certainly during registrar life. I think work-life balance is incredibly important. Uh, it makes us better doctors, better husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. So you need that balance and, and certainly better surgeons. But there's no doubt that without experience, you will not be exposed to certain conditions, certain pathologies, certain ways of treating fractures. Uh, you need to absorb all that, and that only comes with time, but you've got to strike that balance. So for me, I remember one of my unaccredited years at the Northern Hospital where I worked, I think, of, uh, you know, 72 hours. I think I was at the hospital for all 72 hours, including sleeping there, uh, which was not uncommon during that time, and then expected to function on the Monday. That's probably less common nowadays, but it certainly exists, and it doesn't mean that it's not hard. It's not that it's now become easy. And I think as... An orthopedic profession, when I and it, thankfully it's very uncommon, but when a registrar gets on the program and might be in like set two or whatever it is, or second or third year of training, and they go, you know what, orthopedics is hard. I didn't realise. I feel like we've failed as a profession if that's occurred, that they haven't realised that prior to that, that their mentors and their the people around them haven't, or they haven't been exposed to orthopedics being a hard slog because it, it is difficult, but you have to enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, then you need to realise that pretty promptly because that's what helps you get through those long days, turning up to work every day, enjoying the company of, of the people that you're working with. Um, as registrars, you know, there are certain, um, during training, there are certain rotations that might be considered really fun and good rotations and then others that, uh, you know, I'll choose my words quite, uh, carefully but might be a bit more challenging, for instance. Um, but, you know, a good rotation can be made not so good by the group of people you work with, but equally a challenging rotation can be made simple just because of the people you work with and the, the teamwork and being able to look after each other during that rotation and enjoying coming to work. And that's certainly been my experience during my training um, and what I kind of gravitate to now in consultant life as well. Mm, you mentioned that there are little you know rotations that you go on and get exposed to other subspecialties and there's you know quite a few in orthopaedics. There's trauma, arthroplasty, foot and ankle... Um, and even orthopaedic oncology. Uh, what were the ones that you liked and disliked during your training and, and why? So, I mean, there's nothing I particularly disliked during training, and I suppose I'll refer to what I said earlier about, you know, if you shut your eyes to certain areas of um, training, then you're going to miss out on things. You're not going to get the skills that you learn from, say, foot and ankle surgery and on managing, you know, delicate wounds and, and closing delicate wounds with... Um, around the foot and the ankle that might become relevant when you're dealing, for me, in knee surgery with multiple incisions uh, in various areas, for instance. 
Um, so it's certainly nothing I disliked, but there's certainly more others I gravitated to uh, towards. And for me, it was trauma, hip and knee replacement, and sports knee surgery, other things that I really enjoyed during my training, and then obviously explored that further on, on fellowship later. And then there were things I really enjoyed at the time, knowing full well that it wasn't something I'd be doing as I went into consultant life. And those things, are, you know, such as foot and ankle surgery, as I mentioned, uh, pediatric orthopedics, elbow surgery, these are a couple of things that gained skills from knowing full well that I wasn't going to then practice in it later on. It's a difficult question, but was there a reason why you liked some of those? I mean, I mean, I can understand how you'd like or well, sports yeah. orthopedics sort of yeah. surgeries, but say the the arthroplasty. You know, what yeah. was it about arthroplasty that you're interested in? Yeah, it's a bit of a nature versus nurture thing. In that, I guess arthroplasty is probably a common thing you're exposed to. It's something that happens at every hospital. Hip and knee replacements are pretty bog standard orthopedics with the straightforward stuff. And then it's taken to that level above with the challenging cases, revision surgery, um, the mechanics of it, uh, the fact that people crawl in and, and, you know, two days later are walking out, that sort of stuff mm. is what I really enjoyed. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to arthroplasty because I've, I've seen you perform an arthroplasty and it's actually one of the reasons that have got that made me become interested in, <laughs> in orthopedics. So you mentioned fellowships as well. Yeah. I don't really know what they are, to be honest. How do you complete... You know what? What is a fellowship? And and you've trained overseas as well. So how how did you do that? Yeah. So I guess the nomenclature is something first to explain when you talk about a fellowship. One of the confusing things is um, from the Royal College of Surgeons or the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, we obtain a fellowship. That's what the exam is. It's called the fellowship exam. So at the end of five years, you sit your fellowship. But that's not the fellowship we talk about when we say we've gone on fellowship. So that's just something to clarify. And a fellowship really is something that is done after your formal training and it can take various forms, but it's really um, once your training is finished, it's an area of extra training you undertake for, it can be local, it can be regional, it can be interstate, it can be international. Obviously, there's had, again, the impact of COVID, which is a, a massive deal in terms of fellowships that are occurring overseas, but I've just had a mate of mine go over um, and I've got a few away at the moment, so it is still happening. And it's just in an area that you find interesting that you want to learn more about. But it's not just about orthopaedics, okay? It's about, again, work-life balance. So when we talk about going overseas, for me, one of the main things in fellowship was to combine that orthopaedics and that learning at an area, you know, a hospital with world renown, which I went to Avon Orthopaedic Institute, which has distinguished history in patellofemoral joint sort of replacement and management as well as sports knee surgery, and then up to Edinburgh um, in Scotland for further training in, in revision hip and knee surgery. But I, you do that in the knowledge that you're also in Europe and in Bristol, you're half an hour away from an airport um, that will take you to anywhere in Europe within like an hour and a half. So you're finishing a case on uh, Friday lunchtime in Bristol and then you and the family were sitting in Paris having dinner that night, right? Stuff you can't do here in Australia, which is amazing, um, but it's a long way away from a lot of these places, right? So it is this balance, but you can make it whatever you want. I know, you know, you were saying earlier about the possibilities of going to Europe later on in Italy and is that possible of course it's possible you can make whatever you want um, a reality when it comes to fellowship you just got to identify what you'd like to do. Is orthopedic surgery different in some of the countries in Europe versus what what we do here? 
Yeah, I would say that, I mean, the techniques you could say are different from hospital to hospital within Melbourne, right? But I guess there are broad principles that you learn during your training that are then handed down generation to generation. And that will result in differences from country to country. There's no doubt about that. You know, the idea of whether arthroplasty, hip replacement should be done cemented or uncemented, for instance. But equally, there are a lot of similarities. Right? The way surgeons, you know, see patients, manage patients, the way surgeries undertaken, the various ways hospitals are sort of constructed and, and run. You see a lot of similarities, not all of them positive uh, in terms of, you know, the way a public hospital runs here versus the UK. Uh, so there will be differences, but a lot of similarities as well. There's just one question I've thought of, which yeah. we sort of didn't talk about earlier, is in I know in America they've got this, you know, you can have a hip replacement and be out the same day. Yeah. Um, what? How is that possible? And you know, we're gonna. Why don't we have that here in Australia? So depending who you talk to, we certainly have that already. Um, but like anything, it depends what you're reading to understand the basis behind it. So a lot of the papers that talk about same day discharge arthroplasty in America, at least the early papers, they're actually being discharged to a medi hotel style next door. Much like when you have a baby, you might go to the Park Hyatt the day after. You've been discharged from St V's, but you're still being cared for by a nurse. So that was then. Now they certainly are day case arthroplasty. In the UK, for instance, we did day case um, partial replacements, day case ACL uh, reconstructions. I guess that links to, you know, uh, is surgery different overseas? And they weren't doing that as some sort of amazing thing. That's just normal for them. So does it occur now, a day case arthroplasty? Yes, it does. A lot of it is to do with patient expectations. Um, I'm helping develop a plan for that at the Austin Hospital. And, you know, there's day case versus 23-hour stays. So you operate on Tuesday, you're out Wednesday. It's all certainly possible, but it can't happen overnight. Um, It starts from the moment, the first moment a patient gets told about the chance they might need a replacement. Now, if their GP, for instance, or their physio, or even their surgeon tells them, oh, you'll be in hospital for about a week and you might need rehab after that, then that stays with them. It's very hard to undo that. If the first person that sees them says the best place for you is home, we want you to be comfortable and safe and you get discharged when that occurs, and that is often after one to two days, then that changes the patient's sort of expectations. That's the number one thing. And then within the hospital, it takes some work. The physios, the surgeons, the medical staff, all pointing and all giving the same message that, yes, you are safe to go, yes, um, it's appropriate, you've pains or managed, you've had your x-ray, things are good, well done. You're sort of talking about life as a consultant there and I've asked you before and it's the question I was most wanting to ask you so that people can hear it is how does life change when you become a consultant because it must be quite stressful when all of a sudden the patients really are yours. Yeah, so uh, it changes in multiple ways and a lot of that to do is not just with orthopaedics, it depends on your life style at the time, whether you've got a partner, whether you're married, whether you've got kids. You know, for me, (laughs) essentially we timed it so that my first child was born in the last week of my registrar life. So I ended registrar training with paternity leave. I started consultant life with paternity leave. And so starting as a consultant also coincided with being a father for the first time. So there are major changes that occur. When it comes to consultant life, I think the easiest way to describe it is that 
as a consultant, I found it less physically demanding, but much more mentally demanding. Uh, and that's not to say registrar life isn't mentally demanding, but certainly, um, you know, the patients are yours. It's your name on the, on the sticker now, uh, on the operation note. You are making the decisions, no one else. You're doing the operation. If anything goes wrong, it's you that's dealing with it. It's not on behalf of anyone else. Um, you know, you're not just dealing with patients, you're planning your operating lists, you're planning uh, your outpatient lists, you're organising a fellowship. Um, if you're starting private practice, then suddenly you're a businessman or businesswoman without any formal training whatsoever. So a lot of these things, you know, are, are things you hadn't actually been taught or thought about leading up to it. Mm, that's really good advice. So you um, you mentioned mentally demanding, but surgery itself is physically demanding. You know, like I said before, I've seen you do a full list of surgeries. You were standing up for quite a few hours. You sat down to have a coffee, but that was about it. What do you do to sort of keep your body in shape so that you can do that? And, and even mentally, do you do anything to sort of help focus for long periods of time or anything like that? Uh, I like how you describe me like I'm physically in shape, but that's um, nice of you. Look, I think a lot of it is what you get used to. There's no doubt about that. So if that's what you do during a training and you're used to doing long hours, then it's not, I don't particularly find it challenging. But at the same time, as you get older, you probably should be looking at how you're doing things and are you standing the right way? Is your posture correct? You know, are there um, ways you can keep fit? And and certainly for me, I've already mentioned I play basketball. I like basketball, but I play basketball once a week. I'm not sure if an annual cricket match with mates from school counts as as um, as exercise, uh, and it probably doesn't given the amount of beer we drink on that day. Um, and then, you know, just recently I've started during COVID, my neighbours were going to the gym, so I started going with them, which I found pretty beneficial. And then, yeah, so that's probably the physical side of things. And then mentally, you're right, but I think for me at least mentally, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about orthopaedics in terms of upcoming operations or ones that have just occurred or how am I going to do this certain operation or manage this um, patient and the pathology that they've got. Uh, so that's always going on, I guess. Mm, so one of the things as well, which I'd said I'd bring up a bit later in the interview, was that arthroplasty, um, and in particular robotic assistance. Yep. The Austin's just got uh, a Mako robot from Stryker. I'm just wondering, does that make it easier for you? Yeah, so uh, robotic joint replacement surgery is a large umbrella term for different ways of doing robotic replacement. Obviously Stryker and other companies... Zimmer and others have different robots and they all offer different benefits. Uh, some are robots that help you put the pins in the right place to then put the jig on and you still perform a knee replacement like you would otherwise. Other forms, the robot's actually doing the cutting with a saw attached to the robotic arm and you're guiding it. And that's probably what you're referring to. Does that make it easier? I don't think it does. I don't think it makes it physically less demanding depending on the type of operation. You're still making the approach. You're still doing the exposure. You're still holding it in different ways. Um, if anything, it can be challenging because you're not used to standing in certain you know, ergonomic positions or holding your wrist in a certain way to get the acetabular reaming or the, or the sore. Um, but no, I don't think it necessarily makes it less physically demanding. Okay, last question, and you've mentioned it multiple times. What I want to know is about family and friends. So who are some of the people that have helped you along the way to becoming an orthopedic surgeon? And you have alluded to it, but how important to you is spending time with friends and family? Yeah, so um, I, I guess 
you're asking sort of mentorship and 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 who do I look up to and who's helped me along the way and it's funny how our really simple things or or things that people don't feel they have contributed in any way actually have a profound effect on you as a person I guess there's like those passive ways of helping you and those active ways and for me one of the one of the people that I looked up to is actually a surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon by the name of Freddie Daniel. He recently passed away, but he's actually from the same part of India that my parents are from. So here I am as a young medical student in the halls of the Austin, and to see him walking around as a cardiothoracic surgeon, this is now 20 years ago, through the halls of the Austin Hospital, and not doing anything particularly different or particularly amazing, just seeing him there and having that presence really does give you that sort of feedback that these things are possible, uh, which had a, ma- a massive effect on me to you know move towards surgery. And then more from the active point of view, I mentioned Roger West, my mentor at the Austin Hospital. Uh, also, Professor Graham helped me um, immensely. He's at the Children's Hospital with getting on the program, but as well... <laughs> As I'm sure Prof won't mind me saying that, as well as Professor Graham, it sounds a bit silly, but his secretary, who, it's just little things, but if you make that connection with people that, you know, it's simple things like putting a piece of paper in front of the surgeon to sign a form so that your research application goes in sooner, so that the book chapter gets published quicker than I did with him, or that your application to orthopaedics goes through with with less of a problem there's really little things along the way can actually have massive profound effects and and of course i mentioned my parents i mean they were classic sort of ethnic parents that pushed you pretty hard towards medicine but at the same time there's no doubt without without them i wouldn't be where i am today um and so just to finish the the part about family friends that i mean that's number one for for me um they are the most important thing in in my life well the peaks is really special um, but, you know, for me, family and friends is where it really matters. Uh, my wife, Erin, has been very supportive. Uh, my kids make it all worth it coming, you know, home after a long day and see them smiling and running up the corridor. Uh, and these are perspectives, of course, that change um, as, you, as you grow up. But it really helps you, you know, vice versa, become a better surgeon, but also, you know, a better person, I think. Awesome. Maddie. thanks so much for that. It's been really good to hear about the journey from being a medical student to becoming a real orthopod. Um, and thanks again. No worries. I really appreciate it, Liam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode. <laughs>